Meng Wanzhou stays put. This was supposed to be the game stopper. That failed. The Huawei executive loses in court. What it means for Canada-China relations. Questionable spending at the city of Vancouver. It just seems like the wrong message to send right now. The new social media specialist adding to the payroll at what some say is the wrong time. And a BC paraglider with a four-legged co-pilot. I was just thinking how amazing it would be to share my flying experiences with a little dog. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Worldwide attention is on BC Supreme Court today as a judge rules against Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. The ruling means Meng must stay in Canada as her legal team continues to fight a U.S. extradition order. Grace Key was in the courtroom for us today. Grace, uh, what was today's ruling about? Yeah, we're just in front of her Vancouver home where she uh, is going to be staying now under house arrest. So this all centers around a legal term called double criminality. So essentially, a judge ruled that the offense Mung is accused of in the United States would constitute a crime in Canada. It's a major legal blow for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Her extradition case is moving forward after a judge concluded that the offense she's accused of in the U.S. would constitute a crime in Canada, a legal term known as double criminality. Fraud is broad. That is the heart of the decision. The definition of fraud in an extradition context must be kept as broad as possible, according to the court. And that's because there are bad people doing bad things all over the world. The 48-year-old CFO of a telecommunications giant is accused of fraud, essentially deceiving a bank into making transactions that are in violation of U.S. sanctions on Iran, sanctions that do not exist in Canada. In a 23-page ruling, the Honorable Associated Chief Justice Holmes states... The essence of the alleged wrongful conduct in this case is the making of intentionally false statements in the banker-client relationship that put HSBC at risk. The U.S. sanctions are part of the state of affairs necessary to explain how HSBC was at risk, but they are not themselves an intrinsic part of the conduct. Iranian sanctions uh, are not as oppressive as human slavery, and that's why even though Iranian sanctions may not have been in Canada, the material time, the case is capable of being met in terms of fraud. Huawei released a statement reading, they are disappointed in the ruling today by the Supreme Court of BC. We have repeatedly expressed confidence in Ms. Meng's innocence. Huawei continues to stand with Ms. Meng in her pursuit for justice and freedom. All right, Grace, looks like this will be going on for some time to come. Then what happens next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this extradition case is going to go on. She has maintained her innocence throughout all of this. So her next uh, legal maneuver uh, in the fight again, uh, for her release does deal with a civil claim. So she is saying that her rights were violated while she was being detained at Vancouver International Airport, and that was back in December of 2018. Sophie? Thanks for that, Grace Key, reporting in Vancouver. Well, today's ruling keeps Canada in an uncomfortable diplomatic and economic bind. Our country is stuck in the middle of escalating tensions between the U.S. and China, while two Canadian citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, are still imprisoned by Beijing. Aaron MacArthur reports.
As Chinese consular staff left court Wednesday, the ramifications of the extradition hearing were already being felt. Canada's relationship with China, already frayed, could now face all new levels of sanctions. Expect China to ratchet up uh, trade sanctions and to introduce economic penalties at uh, the front of the line, unfortunately, are the two Michaels. Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, both being held in Chinese jails accused of espionage. International observers say the detention directly tied to the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. As the ruling from Justice Holmes was getting closer, the overt pressure from Beijing to release her was made abundantly clear. Canada should immediately release her to avoid further damage to China-Canada relations. I truly Prime Minister has been saying there is never any need for Canada to apologize for judicial independence. Immediately after the ruling was handed down, Canada's foreign affairs minister took to social media. The statement confirming the government's commitment to the extradition process and saying the top priority is and remains securing the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who have been arbitrarily detained for over 500 days. Canada has been dealt a very tough hand. We're caught between Washington and Beijing. That relationship's deteriorating rapidly, especially in an election year in the United States. The longer Meng remains under house arrest, the longer Spavor and Kovrig will remain confined in Beijing. Without access to regular consular visits, and at this point, no real understanding of their well-being. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A sad end to the search for an Abbotsford woman who went missing more than three years ago. Abbotsford police now say human remains discovered in March on a rural property were those of 38-year-old Marie Stewart. She was five months pregnant when she went missing December 27th of 2016. Police say foul play is not suspected, but they are still investigating. A New West family is frantic tonight trying to find their loved one who wandered away from hospital after a car accident. The man has head injuries and was apparently showing signs of confusion. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, the family only learned of his disappearance when they called the hospital. No one will ever understand the pain that me and my parents are feeling right now. Crystal Jarvis is desperately worried about her brother, 41-year-old Gavin Delos. On Friday, he was brain injured in a car crash. Then Sunday morning, he walked out of Royal Columbian Hospital with no wallet and no phone, wearing a hospital gown. He's a family man, the best brother, the best son. He talks to my parents every day. You know, it's not like him to go somewhere and not tell us. Police say there have been two sightings of Gavin, both on Sunday. The last one outside the Caribou Road Christian Fellowship Church. Despite hours of searching, no one has seen him since then. We've deployed uh, Coquitlam Search and Rescue, police helicopter. We've had the police boat out for shoreline searches. We've got patrol units. We have crime analysts even helping. Families say their first priority is finding Gavin. But they're deeply troubled they were not notified when the injured man left hospital. Fraser Health refused to provide any answers as to what occurred. In an emailed statement, they told Global News, Unfortunately, due to patient confidentiality, we are unable to discuss the details related to a specific patient's health care circumstances. 
Gavin Delos is a Burnaby resident, and his family believes he may be trying to find his way home. If you see Gavin, you're asked to keep eyes on him and call 911. The least they could have done was call us, because at seven thirty, if they had called us, we would have driven over here. We would have got our son. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A Delta family is turning grief into action after the death of their grandfather. The family of 88-year-old Jarnel Sangara, whose body was found nine days after he went missing, has started a petition for a silver alert system. It just so happens an NDP MLA pushed for that very same thing when she was in opposition. Ted Trenecki reports on where the effort stands now under the NDP government. Silver alerts are used frequently stateside. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has been using this targeted technology for eight years. But in B.C., it's nowhere to be found, despite calls by the then-opposition NDP to get it going. Like an Amber Alert, it's province-wide, and, you know, that becomes a real problem. Well, I'm not thinking about province-wide. It needs to be community response. There's no sense in alerting people in Golden when someone in Coquitlam has gone missing. Last Sunday, the body of 88-year-old Jarnail Sangara was found near Nordell way in 116th Street. His family had been searching frantically for him for nine days. We did whatever we could as much as, as we felt as a family as fast as we could but again you know it comes down to having as many eyes as possible aware of the situation. Some family members even while grieving their loss believed it was necessary to start an online petition and the response from the public has been phenomenal. This is focused primarily on people who have cognitive disabilities, whether it's dementia, like my grandfather suffered. If you see an individual like that on the street, they may be physically perfectly healthy, but they mentally just might be unaware of where they are. He says people don't understand what it's like to try and find a lost loved one when time is so important. Information just was not consistent and um, quick enough. There were days before information would get out to the public. Common response for not implementing the technology in B.C. is what's called alert fatigue. Too many alerts, too often. You know, we need to get past this alert fatigue. Like, there are ways around it. And so it's quite frustrating. Sam Noah started B.C.'s silver alert campaign more than six years ago when his Alzheimer's father went missing and hasn't been seen since. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Let's take a look at today's COVID-19 infection numbers for the province. We have just nine new cases, bringing the total in B.C. to 2,550. There's one more death, which means 162 people have now died of COVID-19-related complications. 37 people are in hospitals, seven of those in ICU. Changes there. We have 244 active cases and 2,144 people are considered fully recovered. There was no daily briefing today from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, but the Premier did offer an update on the state of the pandemic in our province. And while we are having success, Keith Baldry explains why the state of emergency has been extended. Firstly, of course, the state of emergency has been extended for an additional two weeks. To absolutely no one's surprise, BC's provincial state of emergency will continue, likely indefinitely. As we turn the dial up and increase our social and economic activity, it's important to make sure that we don't lose sight of the objectives that we as a province collectively embarked upon some two months ago. 
Even in an emergency, the legislature will soon resume sitting, with June 22nd set for its return. But things will look a lot different. MLAs will be returning to Victoria so we can conduct uh, the business of the province. Some will be here in person, some will be uh, beaming in with technology, but at the end of the day, debate will take place, votes will be cast, and democracy will be well served. The Premier also addressed the dire news coming out of Ontario, where a damning report on long-term care homes there painted a picture of neglect and filth in many of them. That's not happening in B.C., he says. On the broader question of public confidence within, within our long-term care uh, facilities, I, I can say with great certainty that uh, the providers are, are giving the best care possible under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and the horror stories that we're seeing out of Quebec and Ontario are not being duplicated here in British Columbia. And when travel measures open back up this summer, a suggestion from the Premier today. Plan to visit BC and nowhere else. On the whole question of international uh, travel, uh, we're going to review that as we do with all issues uh, on a weekly basis. I don't foresee any change in, in, the, in the near term at all. And that's why we're asking uh, Destination BC to focus on encouraging British Columbians to stay home and go to those places they haven't been to in a while or perhaps have never been to. Yes, Keith joins us now with a little more on the Premier's address. Keith, uh, we mentioned travel in there. There is uh, a bit of an update because a lot of people are interested. They're interested. We still have uh, an advisory not to travel yet. We're still in sort of that 28-day period after the easing of restrictions before we see what impact that's having. But uh, the Premier Hogan was asked a number of times today about uh, self-isolating, how long that's going to last. That has implications for the NHL, of course, if they ever decide to come to Vancouver. That 14-day isolation must be maintained, uh, the Premier says. And again, he repeats that international travel uh, unlikely to occur in any great numbers anytime soon. We have made progress in British Columbia because we have insisted on our borders being closed and anyone who's coming into Canada, uh, for, for whether they be British Columbians returning home from abroad, are required to self-isolate uh, for 14 days. And we've been tracking that, 32,000. On the whole question of international uh, travel, uh, we're going to review that as we do with all issues uh, on a weekly basis. I don't foresee any change in, in, the, in the near term at all. So I accidentally included the same clip that ended my story. Apologies for that. Uh, now, if you want an indication of why we're keeping the border closed and restricting international travel, just look at what's happening in Washington State. Today in B.C., nine cases reported. Washington State reported 225 cases of COVID-19. And that sort of ratio has been there for some time. It's not going away in Washington in terms of those numbers, which is why you're going to see governments pressing Ottawa and Washington not to open the border anytime soon. Sounds like you're right. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. John Horgan is also trying to reassure parents who might be nervous about sending their children back to school next week. As Richard Zussman reports, the results of surveys on just how many students will return to class are raising questions about safety. The desks spread apart, the classrooms clean, the soap ready. Now all BC schools are waiting for is an influx of kids. To put in place a plan that we believe will work for the month of June to better prepare us uh, for the return to regular school in September. Uh, What will happen uh, on Monday will happen on Monday. On Monday, voluntary school begins. More than 100,000 kids are expected back for part-time schooling from K to 12. 
The number of students is not confirmed yet, although most districts have already provided the province with how many students they expect. Some districts are saying 25%, some are saying 40%, some are saying 60%, so there is a range there. And that very well could go up, with some parents still waiting to see a back-to-school plan or see with their own eyes what a return looks like. What we'll see is, uh, as, as we've seen in other jurisdictions, more students arrive once the doors open and uh, once parents can actually see what's happening inside the buildings. Not all districts will be on the same schedule, with non-in-class days varying by district. Edith McDermott Elementary in Pitt Meadows making this video to show what school will look like. Part of New Look School including staggered drop-off times, no parents on school property and no sharing of food and school supplies. Teachers still grappling with some concerns. We're still working out the accommodations and that's, that's taking a little bit of time and so we have still this week to do that. There have been some complaints from pregnant teachers, those over 65 and those who are either immunocompromised or living with someone who is, about being forced back into the classroom. But Fleming says a huge majority of those asking to keep working from home are being allowed to do that as districts work through the issue. We're still going to need lots of teachers to help kids who are learning online remotely at home. As to whether virtual learning is included for the new school year, the province says that decision will take place much closer to Labor Day. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. It may not be a return to normal, but Harbor Air is resuming operations. The company has made a number of changes to how it operates, including providing gloves and masks and checking temperatures of both passengers and crew. A number of routes will resume starting June 1st, including the YVR to Victoria run, YVR to Nanaimo, and Vancouver to Maple Bay routes. Service between Vancouver and Tofino will resume on June 5th. Well, in a city that's strapped for cash, a recent decision has some people questioning Vancouver's spending priorities. Why it might go viral in just over a minute. Better luck next time for NASA astronauts facing a critical test. Why today's historic launch was scrubbed with just 17 minutes to spare later. And the owners of a legendary country bar are singing the blues. How fans are reacting to the closure of Gabby's coming up. Right now, though, the spending priorities of Vancouver City Council are back under the microscope. Facing a huge reduction in revenue due to the COVID crisis, City Hall is looking at making cuts to essential services like garbage pickup and policing. But as Jordan Armstrong reports tonight, at least one of the budget items Council is planning to spend more money on is social media. No one could argue that Vancouver is looking its best these days. This is Hastings Street, and this was Jim Diva Plaza in the West End recently. The last thing that you do is cut sanitation services when you have a health pandemic. So Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young is baffled that Council voted to remove $130,000 from a planned 300 grand boost for garbage pickup and street cleaning Yet a social media staffer is still being hired for the city manager's office at a salary of $95,000. Given the fact that we have a hiring freeze at the city of Vancouver, we have 1,800 staff on temporary layoff, and all of our exempt staff that have taken a 10% pay cut, it just seems like the wrong message to send right now. Attempts to get city manager Sadhu Johnson on camera to speak about this new hire failed. We also wanted to know why the city's existing communications department, which has ballooned in the past decade, apparently can't handle the work. 
In 2017, the city had 21 full-time and 12 part-time communications staffers, and those positions didn't include the mayor's office. We asked the communications department for current numbers, but they did not communicate them to us by deadline. We have dozens of communication staff, and I think just like everybody else is having to pivot and learn how to work flexibly and prioritize, I think that's what the city needs to do right now, too. Meanwhile, the city reported a new estimate Wednesday for lost revenue, $136 million, a slight improvement. The previous projection was $152 million. However, the news is not any better for homeowners. They are still facing a property tax increase of 7%. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Up next, driven to distraction. A new ruling on an old ticket and why you better not have your phone in your lap after all. And for the sickest of the sick, something Metro Vancouver is doing better than almost anywhere else in the world during the COVID crisis. Traffic is moving well over here in both directions at the Patello Bridge. And good news, just cleared a police incident northbound on King George Boulevard at the lights at 128. For Matt Collision and Autoglass have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Do you think having your cell phone near you or on your lap as you drive is okay? Think again. B.C. Supreme Court says it constitutes distracted driving. As Brad McLeod reports, that contradicts a previous ruling by a lower court a few months ago that gave drivers the green light. It's easy to spot the look down. Drivers possibly taking a peek at their phone in their hands or laps. A new Supreme Court of B.C. ruling makes it clear you are breaking distracted driving laws, not only if you have the phone in your hands, but if it is on or even near your lap. The case involved 36-year-old Zahir Rajani. He got a $300 ticket after an officer saw him looking down while driving. Rajani said he wasn't using his phone, but it was wedged between his thigh and the seat. Rajani appealed the conviction, but Monday, Supreme Court Justice Heather McNaughton dismissed his appeal, saying having a phone wedged amounted to holding the device in a manner in which it may be used. This case is very important because it actually overrules an earlier judgment um, from a couple months ago. Now, this recent ruling really broadens the term holding your phone while driving. No longer allowed, wedging it right here. That's called holding. And also it overturned previous decisions. If you have your phone right here, you could also get a ticket. Kyla Lee feels there is room to challenge this notion, especially if the screen is facing down. It's just another method of affixing the phone to the vehicle or affixing the phone to your person or between the two. Um, and the law does permit people to have their phones securely affixed to the vehicle or securely affixed to their person. Police are often the ones tasked with translating the laws in the moment, so decisions like this are welcome. Certainly help clarify uh, the laws for police to understand and help better enforce educate the public. Lee says she has been inundated with questions about what is allowed. She believes phones in pockets and under bra straps should be okay. But it will remain to be litigated and it will take a case where an officer issues a ticket for it before we actually get an interpretation of the law. But officers say the solution has always been simple. Just to put your phone away. Brad McLeod, Global News. 
After more than 30 years of line dancing and good times, one of the province's oldest nightclubs is shutting its doors forever. The owner of Gabby's Country Cabaret in Langley says it just doesn't make sense to hold on to the operation through what could be a very lengthy closure. And he warns many other nightclubs won't make it either. John Waugh reports. Lineups around the corner. Live music. Making mistakes and making new friends. And lots of great times. It's what kept Gabby's Country Cabaret in Langley going strong for more than three decades. Where everybody knew everybody and it was like a bad in your basement, uh, a party at home. It seemed nothing could stop the music. That is, until COVID-19. Great crowds, great people, great bands. A lot of good memories here. Um, it's hard to be in here when it's empty. But with nightclubs and live music venues like Gabby stuck in phase four of the province's restart plans, the uncertainty proved to be too much. The bills piled up. At the end of the day, it, the money dries up. And how far in debt do you want to go? Known for giving famous country acts their start. And even getting a few acting credits. Many can't imagine a future without Gabby's. It was like going through a time warp in there, and everybody loved it. All the, even the new youngest artists love going in there and playing. The warning to the government if this iconic country cabaret can't survive COVID-19, none of the cornerstones of our local music scene should be considered safe. Entertainment is hit one of the hardest because it is last on the list of who, you know, who gets help and who gets to return to normal. Once the closure was announced, the tributes started pouring in. One note left on the door reads, to the nights we don't remember, to the ones we can't forget. Not in my wildest dreams that I ever think we would be ending it this way. A quiet goodbye to Gabby's country cabaret and the good times many wish could go on forever. John Hua, Global News. Tough to see. Make a good country tune, though, if somebody can write it. We'll see if they do. Up ahead, how B.C. leads the way in COVID treatment. So you're certainly preparing for the worst. Why this province stands out for patients who end up in ICU. And countdown interrupted. Why NASA astronauts will have to try again on Saturday. At BC Children's Hospital, the heroes don't wear capes. They sit beside us, walk with us, and never stop searching for answers. Help the heroes. Join us for Miracle Weekend, May 30th on Global BC. Traffic is moving well here in both directions at the Alex Fraser Bridge right now. Keep in mind that overnight maintenance causes some lane closures every night from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Kermat Collision and Autoglass have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. The Canadian Forces sent more than 1,300 soldiers to help fight COVID-19 in Quebec, many of them in the province's long-term care facilities. What they saw there echoes the horror they witnessed in Ontario, and the forces released its damning report describing it in every detail. Global's Dan Spector has the details. 
By the time the military was deployed to Quebec long-term care facilities on April 20th, it was clear seniors' homes were the center of the province's COVID-19 crisis. The military has now put the main problems in black and white in a 60-page report on what they've seen firsthand. Staffing shortages, failure to properly manage COVID zones and non-COVID zones, and the lack of infection control practices. Not many surprises, said François Legault. Again and again, the military describes staff not wearing protective equipment properly before being trained by soldiers. At Grace Dart, the report blamed rapid spread of the virus on bad discipline in wearing PPE, not respecting red zones and green zones, and not changing equipment between zones. Staff received more training but continued to break the rules, sometimes even leaving in the middle of their shifts. The facility has seen 64 COVID-19 deaths. So we lack training and we lack supervision. What the military are observing is the result. The over 60 armed forces members deployed at Vigimont-Royal described some unique dysfunction there. They estimated the residence was 100% infected on May 19th, said 20 boxes of surgical masks simply went missing, that a delivery of narcotics for residents disappeared. They described management problems. And then when the local health authority sent a manager in to help, that person got COVID-19. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I just can't believe it. How unorganized they are. It's so sad. The military presented a report about their deployment in Ontario care homes on Tuesday, describing soiled residents not being changed, cockroach infestations. Most heart-wrenching report. In Quebec, the military more vaguely described the lack of staff having a direct impact on residents' hygiene. François Legault said he didn't really learn anything from the report. At multiple facilities, the report said things had become easier to manage because numerous residents have died. Dan Spector, Global News, Montreal. A new study shows the Metro Vancouver region has had a significantly lower death rate from COVID-19 than most other cities among people who ended up in intensive care. Linda Aylesworth tells us what helped save lives and why the study's authors thought it was important to get the information out. The first reports on deaths in intensive care units due to COVID-19 were dire indeed. So when the virus reached Vancouver, the healthcare community was braced for the worst. But the experience here turned out to be different. We knew that if we admitted them and we gave them really good, high-quality, team-based critical care, that those patients on balance did well and much better than what was previously published in the literature. The observation inspired Dr. Grisdale to launch a study which followed 117 critically ill COVID-19 patients admitted to six lower mainland ICUs. The big thing that we found is that the overall mortality was 15% which is very much in keeping with what an overall mortality would be in critical care. To put that into perspective, New York ICUs recorded a 23% mortality rate, Lombardy, Italy, 26%, Seattle, 50 and Wuhan, China, 62. Dr. Grisdale suspects there are three reasons why ICUs in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region fared so much better. One, I think, early and strong public health leadership, both from Dr. Henry and Minister Dix. The second, that we the public heeded their advice and practiced physical distancing. And the third, our hospitals had the capacity to treat the sickest of the sick. The ways that we did that, we postponed elective surgery 
And two, because we postponed elective surgery, we were able to build and repurpose some of those other beds to critical care beds. So when we were struck with a wave of COVID-19, no one went without the critical care they needed. If you can provide really high-quality team-based care, then patients can have good outcomes. And I think that's really the message that I take from this study. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Still ahead, Eris the Sky Dog. And she's just you know, always a happy little creature. A BC paraglider who just can't leave his co-pilot behind. And in sports, why the Canucks might be leaving town sooner rather than later. Disappointment today for the millions of people watching NASA and SpaceX attempt to return to manned spaceflight. Two American astronauts were only minutes away from blasting off to the International Space Station from U.S. soil when bad weather scrubbed the launch. Doug Hurley and Bob Bankin arrived at the launch pad in a Tesla, painted to match their spacesuits. The two veteran astronauts had boarded the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule when bad weather forced a scrub. The next attempt will be Saturday, marking the first time in nearly a decade that NASA astronauts launch from U.S. soil. This is a unique opportunity to bring all of America together. Vice President Mike Pence and President Donald Trump traveled to Florida to see the launch. When they do lift off, propelled by the Falcon 9 rocket, Hurley and Bankin will accelerate to 17,000 miles per hour on a rendezvous with the International Space Station. 24 hours after liftoff, they'll be greeted by colleague Chris Cassidy on the ISS. SpaceX is the first private company to send American astronauts into orbit, and CEO Elon Musk feels the weight of that responsibility. Uh, it weighs very heavily. Um, that's really all I can think about right now. I really kind of have to kind of mentally block it, because otherwise the, the, it would be emotionally impossible to deal with. Musk spoke with the astronauts as they suited up for the flight, which NASA says will open the door to America's return to the moon and beyond. All of this ultimately is for a purpose, and that is to get to Mars. Hurley flew the final shuttle mission in 2011 and has spent years training on the new technology. Most of the controls for the crew inside the, inside the, the cockpit are all touchscreens. We do have a few hardware buttons and switches for very, very critical things, but almost everything is controlled by, by touch and screen. That's even how you fly it. For nearly a decade, American astronauts have had to hitch rides on Russian rockets. Now that a private company is handling transportation, NASA says it can focus on the science of space exploration. Skyler Henry, CBS News, at the Kennedy Space Center. Some nasty weather in Florida delayed the launch there, but wow, what a beautiful day around here. Cash is in for Christy tonight. Hello. And uh, yeah, how long is it going to last? Oh, well, it all depends on how you look at things because we're <laughs> starting to see an increase in cloudiness already. There you go. Good evening to you. Uh, a little bit more cloud cover at this point. 20. That was our daytime high. It was about 23, 24 for inland sections. And we kicked off the day with the beauty of a sunrise brought to us by Peter Skur. Then low tide, same spot, Boundary Bay. And sunshine was had pretty much across much of the province today pretty much across the whole province. 25 for Asuyas. The hot spot in the province was lit in at 28, but that wasn't the hot spot in the whole country. Look at this. Montreal, 36.6. Sorry, the graphic is covered there. 36 degrees, and may I remind you that just two weeks ago, they had snow. Fort Nelson, a risk of non-severe thunderstorms tonight and moving forward for tomorrow. We've got 21 to 25 degrees. High-level clouds. They're not going to be producing any rain. Just 
I would say filtering out the sunshine a little bit more for us over the lower mainland. There's the system that's bringing in that cloud cover. There are those thunderstorms already producing uh, in the northeast of the province. So here's what it looks like for you tomorrow afternoon. A pretty good chance of showers over the north coast and inland sections, increasing cloudiness for you over the central coast and across the south. We've got a little bit more cloud cover than today. Temperature is a little bit cooler and then a chance of rain over Vancouver Island tomorrow morning. And here's your next view from Metro Vancouver. Rain in store for Saturday night. And your Centra Windows weather window is brought to us by Jack McDonald from Wellington Point Ladner. Yesterday's sunset. There you go, guys. Some beautiful yeah. sunsets down there in Ladner. All right. Bye, in-laws. <laughs> Time to check in now with Squire to see what's coming up in sports, Squire. Okay, so when the uh, pandemic shut down all the sports, it also shut down all the sports betting. But now that the NHL says it's coming back, there is something to wager on. We will take a look at the new odds to win the Stanley Cup, including Vancouver's odds. And spoiler alert, the Blues aren't favorites to repeat. Also tonight, off-leash into the wild blue yonder. The story of this unusual paragliding pair. Is there any betting, Squire, on when the season might actually... I bet you there is. I bet you there's probably will-it-happen-or-won't-it-happen bets. Hmm. And who will be the hub city? Who, uh, yes, you could bet on... I'm sure you can bet on anything. Um, one of the big takeaways from yesterday's announcements by the NHL is they would like to hold training camp in July and then start the 24-team Stanley Cup tournament after that in two different hub cities. Because of quarantine rules, those hub cities will likely not be in Canada. One other thing about the quarantine rules, it might mean the Canucks will have to leave town early. Eventually, when all of the Canucks get back on the ice for an abbreviated training camp, there's a possibility it won't happen in Vancouver. NHL players are just like anyone else re-entering Canada when it comes to the 14-day quarantine period. And that has the Canucks thinking about abandoning Rogers Arena and heading south of the border for camp. We've talked about that. You know, it's it's something that, you know, we're thinking about. But you know, also, too, we just want to give it a few more days just to see if, if something is going to change. Not having a significant chunk of your roster here in Canada means an additional two weeks without being on the ice once phase two of training camp begins shortly. By our count, the Canucks have a dozen players out of country. So unless quarantine rules change, those players like Jacob Markstrom, Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, Brock Besser, Tyler Toffoli, and Thatcher Demko, just to name a few, will be stuck in quarantine while their teammates skate without them. It's a big concern for us. And, you know, we ta- I talked to, to Travis about it last night. And, you know, we've talked about it again this morning. Um, it's, we worry about it because, like, that's 14 days before, you know, we're going to start a grueling training camp and get into, you know, playing playoff-style games that, you know, basically we're, we're telling our players that, you know, they got to sit around their homes or, or apartments for, and they can't, you know, do the type of training that they need to to get ready for an NHL training camp. They're coming to a game, left side, one-timer scores! And when camp starts, you'll see an expanded roster featuring call-ups from Utica. Final details are still being worked out, but it looks like rosters will expand to 28 skaters and unlimited goalies. 
So expect to see Brogan Rafferty, Michael DiPietro, and maybe Ole Ulevi if he's healthy. Jay Janower, Little Sports. Now, because teams will have been off a few months before the 2014 tournament begins, it's hard to really pick a favorite. But uh, this is basically what Vegas or whoever is holding bets these days is going with. Boston, Tampa, Colorado, the co-favorites at 7-1. to one. Uh, Vegas and Philadelphia checking in at 8-1. to one. There's last year's champs at 11-1. to one. And if you really want to bet the Canucks, 30-1 to one on at least one site we know of. Hastings Racecourse is hoping to run a shortened season this year, starting possibly in July. But that will only happen, of course, with government approval. The track was supposed to have started in late April, but couldn't, obviously, because of the pandemic. If they do come back, there will not be fans allowed at Hastings Park. All betting would have to be done online. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Okay. We'll check in with Jay Durant now for a preview of Global News at 11 tonight. Jay. Thank you, Chris. It seems like an out-of-province license plate is a red flag for some B.C. residents worried about the spread of COVID-19. A number of vehicles in Revelstoke with Alberta plates have been vandalized in recent weeks and nasty notes left. This, even though some of the drivers are now B.C. residents. We'll hear from one of the victims tonight. We'll have that story and a lot more when you join us at Global News at 11. What happened to be calm and kind? All right, thanks, Jay. Coming up next, tonight's healthcare hero and the extraordinary flight record of a man and his best friend. Well, our healthcare heroes have been doing an amazing job during the COVID-19 pandemic, working tirelessly on the front lines for BC. And tonight we recognize another one of your nominations, actually a dynamic duo tonight, Jeremy and Kate Newfeld, a husband and wife team nominated by Kate's very proud mom, Claire. Jeremy normally works as an anesthesiologist at Surrey Memorial, but when the pandemic was declared and many surgeries canceled, he joined the Airways team, which intubates patients, some of them with the virus and others with different ailments. Kate is a family doctor in Ladner, but also finds time to help at the Peace Arch and South Delta COVID clinics. And while they clearly have a full plate of work, they are also very dedicated parents to their four children. And that is a great family portrait, sure by the way. Jeremy and Kate, Claire is bursting with pride for the both of you. And we want to thank you for your dedication to BC during this crisis. If you have a healthcare hero you would like to recognize, send us an email along with a few pictures and details about why they are your healthcare hero. The address is bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. And you just might see them here on the news hour. Here's something you don't always see on the news hour. Dogs, of course, make excellent companions, and most owners know the joy of taking theirs for a run or a hike. But one Kamloops dog owner takes it a step further. And it's a pretty big step. Simon Hergott is a paraglider, and his pup is his co-pilot. Paul Johnson has the story of Eris, the sky dog. Okay. Meet Simon Hergott and his dog, Eris. I work for um, freelance camera operator for, uh, for news networks. Global viewers have seen his photography covering news events in the interior. And like a lot of news hounds, Simon's got the spirit of adventure. Paragliding kind of uh, took hold two years ago. Paragliding, kind of a cross between hang gliding and parachuting. Like a lot of extreme sports, it's mostly a solitary thing. 
But what if you love companionship? Eris is a, an Australian cattle dog, a red healer, and she's a mini variety, uh, which I was specifically looking for. Harness on. And Simon's vision of a co-pilot to share his adventures has worked out. Though she was a little skittish after the first flight, Eris has adjusted well to the aviator lifestyle. It didn't take long before, uh, you know, you know, before she would uh, get super excited when I pulled the wing out of the closet. So after a few flights and some modifications, Eris now rides in the back. They've rode thermals to altitudes of 1,400 meters and had experiences that must astonish the canine mind. We even soared with an eagle and, you know, I, she locked eyes on the eagle. Well, we aren't sure who keeps these kinds of records. Eris's now 70-plus flights must put her near the top of the flying dog category. Now that's something to high-five about. Paul Johnson, Global News. Safe landing. Love to see that. Now, Simon shoots great stories for us. He does a lot of work for us, yeah. yeah. Very and, good. Uh, amazing photography even in that report. Yeah. Mm. All right, uh, let's check in with Kasia once more for a final look at our weather forecast. And uh, weather's, or the temperature's staying pretty, pretty yeah, up there. Uh, pretty solid. Yeah, we get warmer before we start to see those temperatures fall. So Friday is going to be the peak of the heat, up to about 28 degrees for places near Abbotsford. And then Saturday, Sunday, we start to see the decline. Saturday night is when we're expecting showers the next time. Uh, pretty cloudy today, or tomorrow rather. Well, maybe eventually we'll be sitting out in public spaces having a beer or a glass of wine if the city of Vancouver gets around to <laughs> voting on that. We were waiting on that during the show, but it's been pushed off a little bit, yeah, so watch for that it. tonight. They're working on it yeah. for uh, later tonight. BC1 and Global News at 11 will have all the updates for you. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all.